Our solar system is a wondrous place with a single star, our sun, and everything that orbits around it, planets, moons, asteroids, and comets. What do we know about this beautiful solar system we call home? It's part of an even larger cosmos with billions of other solar systems. Hi, I'm Jim Green, NASA's chief scientist, and this is Gravity Assist. Today I'm here with Lindley Johnson, NASA's planetary defense officer. He's in charge of keeping our homes safe from countless numbers of small bodies and debris that hit our planet or even fly by our orbit. You know, the dinosaurs didn't have a space program, as we say in this business, and it's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. And so, Lindley, you're our first ever planetary defense officer. So, for our listeners, what's the difference between an asteroid, a meteor, and a meteorite? Okay, well, that's a common question that gets asked. Uh, it can be a little bit confusing. Uh, but the difference between an asteroid and a meteoroid is simply the size. Uh, the International Astronomical Union just recently laid out the distinction between the two, and everything that's smaller than one meter in size is a meteoroid, and everything bigger uh, than a meter in size is called an asteroid. Now, when a meteoroid, or even an asteroid, enters Earth's atmosphere, you see this blazing trail across the sky. Uh, that's what was seen in ancient times, but they didn't know exactly what it was, and, and that was called a meteor. Now, once the uh, object passes through Earth's atmosphere, it breaks up, and pieces fall to the Earth's surface, to the ground. Uh, and those rocks, so to speak, are, are called meteorites. And those are what uh, scientists like to collect as soon as they can after a fall. Uh, to do a scientific analysis of uh, what is essentially a free sample return from space. Right. You know, uh, it's not just scientists. Uh, you know, more recently, um, uh, they looked at a dagger that came from Tut's tomb, and it was iron. And they did the analysis of it, and it turned out it had a certain iron-nickel ratio, which indicated that it was not of Earth origin. Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, archaeologists have found a number of artifacts uh, that uh, look like they were made out of meteorites. Uh, uh, the Arn uh, meteorites uh, are very much able to survive entry through the U.S. atmosphere, and probably to the ancients, that was their one source of, of metal. Right, you know, and, and, and uh, the connection with space and perhaps their uh, religious gods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. All right, getting back to today, you know, what's the first step in uh, protecting Earth from these kind of strikes? Well, you got to find them first. You got to be looking for them, uh, find out what's out there, what may come close to Earth's orbit, and you need to find them uh, well in advance of any close approach uh, or impact to the Earth because it will take us time, years in fact. Uh, to be able to get out there and do something about them before they become an impact hazard to the Earth. Is that because they're so small? I mean, they're so much smaller than planets and moons. Well, uh, that has uh, that certainly makes it more difficult to find them, uh, but it's just simply the time that it takes to get a spacecraft out, or to get it built, first of all, and then to get a spacecraft out to the object to be able to interact with it in some way to uh, change its velocity. That's that's the main principle behind for uh, 
uh, mitigating an impact is just simply changing the velocity of the object so that at the, at the predicted impact point time in time, uh, the object shows up late. How are we able to see these relatively small objects? Aren't they largely very dark and black? Yes, uh, the, uh, there is certainly a population of these objects that uh, is very dark, uh, dark as coal, so that makes them very difficult to, to see in a visible part of the spectrum, uh, which is where we are mainly searching right now using ground-based telescopes. But that's one reason why we would like to be able to search for them in the infrared part of the spectrum, uh, because these uh, objects uh, uh, are uh, uh, illuminated by the sun, and they absorb the, the heat from the sun and then re-emit that heat uh, as radiation that can then be detected in the infrared part of the spectrum. Uh, the catch to that, though, is you have to have a sensor that is looking for them in space because uh, they are so small and dim that uh, the energy uh, uh, can't make it all the way through the Earth's atmosphere. It, uh, it blocks it out. Now, we currently have one telescope in space that is in the infrared. Yes, that's right. Uh, uh, we have a spacecraft which was originally called the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, uh, launched by the uh, Astrophysics uh, Division uh, to build up an infrared background of the sky. Uh, and it was constantly uh, imaging the sky to, to build up this map of the sky. Well, we quickly figured out that with all the images that were it was taking, we could look for an asteroid moving across the sky in those images. And uh, it became a, a prototype capability, so to speak, uh, for an infrared telescope. Uh, after the astrophysicists were done with it, uh, for the planetary defense uh, program here at NASA, uh, took over operations of, of the spacecraft and we made it a full-time asteroid hunter and, uh, and for characterization of them as well, uh, figuring out their size. You know, with all the telescopes now we have on the ground that are looking for them, and as you mentioned, Neowise out there in the infrared uh, band looking for them, how many asteroids are out there that are what we call near-Earth objects? Well, uh, so far we have found a little over 18,000 uh, asteroids wow. of all sizes uh, that come near Earth's orbit, uh, but we think that's a very small part of the overall population. Uh, right now, our tasking is to find the 140 meter and larger uh, asteroids that come near Earth's orbit. 140 meters, that's about uh, 400 to 500 fee, uh, feet uh, across. And, and uh, uh, so we have uh, a, uh, several ground-based uh, projects uh, to do that. but. Uh, our prediction on the population of those objects is uh, uh, 140 meters and larger in size is uh, 25,000. Wow. So far, we've only found a little over 8,000 of those in the 20 years that uh, we've been searching so far. So it's, it's a very uh, complex and complicated job. Yeah, so this is a slow and steady process, but it's one of those that we got to keep doing each and every day is finding these objects. And then, and then you analyze their orbits to determine if they're really threats to Earth. So how many out there are really threats to the Earth? Well, well, that's right. We have to take several observations over a course of time to be able to determine uh, their uh, or orbit and whether they're at some time in the future going to come close enough to Earth to be an impact hazard. Right now, with the known objects, uh, there are none that have a significant possibility of impact in the Earth. Uh, there are several that uh, come very close, and uh, uh, if their orbits were to deviate off of uh, our current predictions for them, 
uh, that could be impact hazards. So there is a subclass of near-Earth objects, which we call the potentially hazardous asteroids, that we have to more closely monitor and, and keep track of those. We now have about 1,900 of those objects uh, that we closely monitor. Well, let's talk about uh, one that flew by the Earth pretty uh, recently. It's uh, called Asteroid 2010 WC9. <laughs> yeah, so tell me a little bit about that. Okay, well, uh, by the designation, we know that this object was found originally in, in 2010. That's the 2010 part of the designation. The WC9 then is uh, tells us uh, which month it was found in. Uh, begins with a W, so we know that that is at the latter part of uh, November of, of 2010, and then 9 is a sequential number. Uh, it's kind of a complicated designation system, but uh, it uh, it works for the astronomers. <laughs> do do we know if it was observed first by WISE or w by uh, ground-based, or how do we know? Now, this was uh, first observed by the Catalina Sky Survey in, in uh, Arizona, and just a few observations were able to be taken of it uh, in that time period, in late November, uh, first couple of days in December of 2010. So we didn't have a very good orbit on it yet at, uh, at that time, and in fact... Uh, we couldn't project the orbit out more than a year or so with any uh, degree of, of certainty. So this close flyby is going to really give us a lot more information about it. Oh, sure. Uh, so uh, we knew it would have another close approach with the Earth at, uh, about this time frame, but we didn't know how, how close. In fact, the uncertainty and time span of when the close approach uh, would happen was 18 days. Wow. Uh, object uh, you know, moving at the speed it does uh, covers a lot of distance <laughs> in, in 18 days. Uh, the Catalina Sky Survey, though, again, reacquired this object on the, on the 8th of May uh, and uh, started taking observations on it again. The Minor Planet Center, where all the observations from around the world go to, was able to uh, quickly uh, uh, correlate those observations with uh, the orbit that they had on this object found back in 2010, 2010 uh, WC9. So now uh, we've greatly expanded uh, the orbit span, uh, uh, the observation span on this orbit, and can uh, much more accurately uh, predict its orbit. Yeah, better predict when it comes by the Earth again. Right. One of the really neat things about this object is that it passed under the Earth and the Moon. Uh, I thought all these objects had uh, pretty much uh, uh, Earth-like uh, or plane-like orbits. Well, it, the vast majority of them uh, do. They're uh, close to what we call the ecliptic, the, orbit, the, the orbital plane of the Earth uh, in the solar system. Uh, but there are... Uh, 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 quite a few of them that uh, are on more highly inclined uh, orbits. Their orbit plane intersects the, the Earth's orbit plane at, a, at an angle that we call the inclination. Uh, for this uh, asteroid, the, its inclination of its orbit is 18 degrees, which is uh, fairly high. Yeah. Makes it, uh, it makes it a little more rare. How close does the sun does it get? Uh, it uh, actually uh, goes in almost as close as Venus's orbit uh, to the sun and then uh, goes back out to uh, the main belt area wow. uh, uh, beyond Mars. That's, Highly that's probably That's probably where it uh, originated at some point, and some encounter with uh, Mars or uh, uh, Jupiter along the way uh, put it into this mm -hmm. yeah, gravitational right. assist. 
uh, put it into this more highly acclaimed, uh, inclined orbit. Yeah, so Mars and, and Jupiter in particular are throwing these objects out of the asteroid belt. So we, this is one of the ideas that uh, tells us that we always have to be monitoring our skies and constantly looking because the source region, the asteroid belt, is full of them. Yep, yeah, that's right. Uh, that's probably the remnants of uh, a planet out there that either didn't form or got pulled apart by Jupiter, uh, one of the two. And um, uh, so uh, Jupiter is, is always causing uh, disturbances uh, in the asteroid belt and either flinging uh, objects uh, out uh, of the belt uh, and out of the solar system in some cases or uh, pushing them into the inner solar system. You know, one of the other ways we use to uh, uh, not only characterize them but get a better orbit is through radar. How do we? Uh, how does that happen? Well, we first have to find them optically. The radar uh, is not. We don't have powerful enough radar that can sweep the skies uh, and detect these objects. Uh, we have to have a good enough orbit uh, that we know when to expect the energy back. Uh, that the radar bounces off of the object, uh, when to know uh, that energy will return because we got to dig it out of the noise. Uh, if we didn't know where to look, uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't see it at all. Uh, so that's the first thing is we have to get a good enough orbit on it with optical telescopes, uh, so that we know where to aim the radar and when to respect uh, when to expect the return. You know, um, uh, it also tells us a lot about its size and characteristics. Right, with enough uh, energy back uh, bounced off the object, uh, we can do what they call radar imaging. It's a little different than, than optical imaging, but it's sort of the same principle. And we can get uh, a good uh, indication of the size, much more precise uh, than we can optically. And also its uh, spin state, uh, how fast is it rotating. Uh, and the other thing that radar does for us is determines whether these objects are, are binaries or, or or even uh, have more moons. Uh, um, uh, the, uh, we, we know of, of several uh, binary asteroids now, uh, uh, an asteroid with a small moon uh, circling it, and that's all been done by, uh, by radar. What's really neat about that, too, is if they get close enough to the Earth uh, and, and the radar hits them, you can actually see features on their surfaces. That's right. You can see uh, craters or large boulders on the surface. It's, uh, it's really very interesting to see these radar images uh, come back. I mean, the concept that these things are still accumulating uh, material, you know, and having it, they're strewn with boulders on the surface, you know, we have a specific name for that. Yeah, it's a, a accretion of, uh, of, of matter. And, um, uh, you know, these are the remnants of the uh, construction of the solar system. These are, are the building blocks. And, you know, you walk around any construction site, you're going to see all this debris around. Well, that's what the asteroids and comets are, the debris from the construction of the solar system. Yeah, actually, we call them rubble piles. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too, yes. <laughs> You know, uh, what kind of damage, if uh, one of these larger objects would uh, make it through the atmosphere and hit the Earth, would we expect? Well, it certainly depends on the size uh, of the object. Uh, uh, this object, uh, WC9, uh, 2010 WC9, 
uh, is estimated to be between about uh, 50 meters and 120 meters in size. Uh, that uh, could be a very damaging uh, impact. Uh, for instance, uh, the object uh, believed to have created Meteor Crater in Arizona uh, is estimated at only 50 meters in size. So that's at the low end of our estimate of the size of this object. It would, uh, it would devastate a, a statewide area if it were to impact. But, but uh, you know, objects that are half that size, maybe 20 meters, do they make it to the surface? Well, pieces of them certainly will. Uh, it depends on how uh, uh, strongly they're, they're composed. Uh, if they are the average uh, uh, rocky asteroid, uh, they will uh, uh, disintegrate in Earth's atmosphere. Uh, that, of course, recently happened in uh, February of 2013 over Shelyabinsk, uh, Russia. Uh, object about 20 meters in size uh, entered uh, about 9 a.m. in the morning uh, and uh, detonated about 23 kilometers above the surface. Uh, the energy release was equivalent to about a half a megaton of energy. You know, I remember that day really explicitly. <laughs> I was uh, being interviewed uh, on a variety of TV shows about another uh, asteroid that was uh, flying by the Earth completely disconnected. <laughs> and when this happened, we were all scrambling to figure out what, what was, was, going, uh, on, what was yes. going on. Yeah. Well, I remember that day well, too, because, uh, <laughs> you know, we had predicted that uh, 2012 uh, DA4 was uh, going to have a close pass by the Earth. Uh, 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 and that's the one we were talking about. Yeah, just outside mm -hmm. of yeah. Uh, geosynchronous. And uh, actually, the, uh, my community, planetary defense community, was at the United Nations Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space mm. uh, meeting. Uh, that week uh, to provide our recommendations on, on what we as an international community ought to be doing about near-Earth asteroids. And, and we thought this close approach was going to be our um, our signature event <laughs> for that week. <laughs> Little did you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Mother Nature has its ways, and uh, Mother Nature just put an explanation point on our report to the, to the UN. So, you know, as you go to these meetings that are international and you talk about uh, these as hazards and and mitigation strategy, uh, what can we possibly do on Earth to prepare uh, to respond to, um, uh, to these objects and, and over a certain size range? Right. Well, as I said before, the first thing we got to do is find them. We've, we've got to expand our capabilities to, to find them far enough ahead of time that we have a chance to do something about them out in space. You know, any object that's larger than about 50 meters in size, we're going to want to find years in advance uh, so that we have a chance to do something about it in space because uh, we just don't want to suffer the impact uh, from those objects. Uh, and so we also have to be looking at the technology uh, that, that might be used. Uh, as I said, uh, the principle uh, to be used is you just need to change the speed of the asteroid by uh, just a fraction of a percent uh, to uh, several years in advance to make it a miss instead of a hit. It will. Uh, not arrive at the same time that the Earth is, in, is at that point in space. So that's a principle to be used. Uh, now, if the object is uh, small enough, uh, just uh, hitting it with a spacecraft, uh, what we call a kinetic impactor, uh, would be uh, enough to change that velocity enough uh, to, to uh, slow it down. And in fact, uh, we're working on a demonstration of that capability now. It's called the Double Asteroid Redirect Test. Or DART. DART, yes. Uh, and uh, uh, DART is about to enter its uh, full-scale uh, development phase. Yeah, that's a really neat mission. Let's talk about DART a little bit. You know, this is our first attempt 
to actually change, intentionally change the orbit uh, of, a, of an asteroid, um, and it's going to a particular one. That's right. Uh, we've uh, chosen the uh, uh, target uh, asteroid uh, Didymos, uh, actually the asteroid system Didymos, because Didymos is a binary asteroid. Uh, it uh, is a, about uh, a half a mile across the primary, and it's orbited by a, a moon that uh, is only about 300 uh, uh, feet across. Uh, so with the DART spacecraft, what we're going to do is impact the moon and change the, its velocity and its orbit about the primary. Uh, so that will change its orbit. And we can ob observe that from the ground, from ground-based uh, telescopes, uh, observe the change and uh, radar of the uh, of the moon's uh, uh, of the moon. Yeah, yeah both both uh, uh, optically and and radar. Of course, radar will give us some more precise measurements uh, and uh, provide us the data that uh, uh, more precisely uh, shows how much force we were able to uh, impart uh, on this uh, on this moon. Yeah, that's a really neat idea. If you yeah. hit that moon, you ought to be able to detect the change in its orbit much quicker than if that was a single asteroid orbiting the sun. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing about it is that uh, we're not changing the orbit of this whole system around the sun, so we're not uh, increasing the danger uh, to Earth of, of uh, this asteroid. You know, there are some things that, you know, we just can't do much about. You know, climate uh, uh, gives us hurricanes and tornadoes and you know, and there may be um, uh, things in the future which, uh, like asteroids that, uh, that uh, come in and impact the Earth, that, that means um, uh, we wouldn't be able to move it in time. What are the things that we're doing now uh, that could help everyone? Well, uh, uh, th that's right. And um, uh, we are working with the uh, interagency uh, um, community, uh, U.S. government, uh, to uh, better prepare uh, all of our uh, uh, activities uh, if an object were detected on an impact trajectory. Yes, it might be something on very short warning and that we're not able to do anything about it in space. Uh, NASA's job, of course, would be able would be to warn of it and uh, predict uh, how bad the effects could be based upon our uh, observations of its size and, and composition. Uh, and we provide that information to uh, other agencies like the Federal Emergency Management Agency uh, who would then be responsible uh, if it were to impact, uh, predicted the impact in U.S. territory uh, for the uh, safety of uh, uh, lives and, uh, and uh, infrastructure. Yeah, it uh, makes a lot of sense that we work with FEMA, who's a real expert in the ability to put out warnings and, and get the state and local governments right. to be able to help in in getting the information out and people moved. Yeah, it's been a real unique opportunity to work with FEMA. And, and FEMA, uh, uh, although that, uh, uh, of course, is their job, uh, this provide, uh, this is a little unique thing for them. It, this is uh, probably the only nat natural disaster <laughs> known of that we can predict uh, not only yeah. uh, minutes, but days, weeks, or even years in advance. And so they, uh, they sometimes, uh, wonder what are we going to do with all that time <laughs> <laughs> well we're going to we're going to get people out of the way if it does happen but of course uh, that's just one of several things uh, uh, you know the, the as you say the earlier the warning the better are there other approaches that uh, we're modeling or thinking about right well there are uh, at least a couple of other uh, techniques we call them uh, that uh, we think would be effective uh, against an asteroid 
another technique uh, that uh, we've done modeling of and, uh, and some development uh, of the capability uh, is called a gravity tractor. Uh, if you have enough time and the asteroid isn't too large, all you need to do is uh, nestle up to it with a spacecraft, um, uh, stand off uh, orbit uh, uh, with it, and the uh, mutual attraction between the spacecraft and the, and the object uh, by gravity uh, will slowly uh, tug that asteroid off its natural uh, orbit into, into a new orbit. We're just using nature's tug rope gravity mm -hmm. uh, to tug the asteroid into a more benign orbit. Uh, that would uh, uh, take uh, several months to years uh, to do that. But the other nice thing about it is that uh, it, we can put it into uh, the new orbit, into the exact new mm -hmm. orbit that, that we want to. We could tug on it a little while and then uh, take measurements to see if we've changed the orbit enough. And if we need to do more, then we tug on it, uh, tug on it longer. You know, it's really amazing to think that just a few decades ago, um, we didn't really realize that uh, how big a threats uh, these kind of things uh, could be um, in the, in our future. Uh, that, but we're really evolving. That, that's right. Uh, you know, 40 years ago, uh, uh, the astronomers didn't uh, know that there were very many objects uh, in orbits uh, uh, that could cross the Earth. In fact, when uh, uh, the uh, near-Earth object uh, program started at NASA back in 1998, uh, there were only 500 uh, asteroids that were known uh, that uh, came inside of the orbit of Mars. Uh, now we have uh, 18,000 right. uh, in and our And still looking. And still looking. And, and that's probably less than 5% of, of the population out there that uh, you know could do damage to the Earth's surface uh, were they impact. You know, uh, the more we work in this area and the ones we find and then announce, uh, it gets picked up a lot by the press and, of course, um, uh, we're interested in, in being open, transparent, and telling everyone what's happening. But what do you think is the most common misconception that you see that the, uh, that the media or press um, uh, do when they talk about these asteroids? Well, I think uh, because it is uh, something that really sparks the imagination and, you know, there have been these movies about asteroid impacts and, and those kinds of things, is that uh, that every asteroid that uh, we announce is going to have a close approach? It you know sets off a, a concern that oh is this asteroid going to impact us? Uh, 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 so I don't think they uh, understand that uh, uh, once we have observations on the object and can establish its orbit, uh, it is it's going to stay on that orbit. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, uh, you know it's just not going to wander around uh, the solar system randomly. Uh, this is all uh, yeah. uh, controlled by the uh, the laws of, of nature, the large laws of orbital mechanics. And right. uh, once you've established a stable orbit, you can predict uh, where that object is going to be many, many years in advance. Uh, our current capabilities, uh, modeling capabilities, uh, we can confidently, uh, given enough observations, uh, predict the orbit out 100 years into the future uh, to determine whether the object is ever going to be a, a threat to the Earth. If our listeners could walk away with one lasting message, what would it be? Well, I think the, the message is that uh, asteroids uh, are, can be a hazard to the Earth, can, are still impacting uh, the planets. Uh, uh, but uh, we now have the technology and capabilities to 
uh, find out if any of them are going to be a threat to us and the spacecraft technology uh, to go out and do something about it and prevent it. This is the only known NASA disaster that we, we know that we could prevent uh, if we uh, know about it far enough in advance. Yeah, that's really neat. One of the things that I ask each of my guests uh, is about their gravity assist. And then that's the activity or event that occurred in their life that really propelled them forward to become the scientist or engineer they are today. Lindley, what was your gravity assist? Well, gee, I, I've had so many of them in my career. I, I really have. I've uh, uh, been lucky, and uh, some might say I've been in the right place at the right time <laughs> on several occasions. Uh, I, I think... Uh, uh, the Apollo program when I was growing up, you know, got me interested in space and uh, being a part of the space program. Uh, that in turn got me into uh, interested in being in the Air Force and, and being part uh, of the Air Force's space program. Uh, that gave me the, the capabilities, uh, uh, the skills, uh, because of uh, the uh, opportunities I was given and the uh, trust that was given in me to uh, really developed my capabilities for program management and, and uh, uh, looking uh, uh, forward into the future with these kinds of things. Um, then uh, uh, coming to NASA uh, 15 years ago now uh, and being put uh, in charge of this program, this near-Earth object program called back then and also working uh, with the uh, solar system exploration uh, missions uh, have all given me the the skills and background uh, to be NASA's uh, first planetary defense officer. Lindley, I've known you for a number of years and I can, I can attest that you are absolutely the right person for this and I am so delighted that indeed uh, we can look uh, to you as our uh, officer of defense for this planet and I want to thank you for all the, all the hard work you've done over the many years. Yeah, well, uh, thank you for this opportunity and the and the years that I've worked with you in the, in the Planetary Science Division. It's, uh, it's been a, a real highlight of my life. Yeah, I've enjoyed it, and it has been one of mine, too. <laughs> well, join us next time as we continue our exploration of the solar system. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist. Gravity Assist.